We'll be in 1 Peter chapter 3 this morning, and as we are, let me just remind you very simply that where we've come from in this, and we've just come out of a section that's been dealing with what it means to submit to various institutions that have been established by God for men. And that could include government, it also could include uh, work situations, uh, certainly then would include even within that, within their context, masters and slaves, that there is not an endorsement for such, but simply there is a Christian way to live uh, within those societal arrangements, and then certainly then the household between husband and wife. And as we come to this section, it's a bit of a summary uh, and introduction all at the same time, because this section that we're dealing with starting here in verse 8 really talks about suffering for the sake of righteousness. And what we're going to look at today in verses 8 through 12 is suffering in the right way. Now, 12, really 12 through uh, 17, um, we could really put that together because it would be a nice and neat two-part outline of suffering in the right way, and then the other verses uh, from 13 through 17 would be suffering for the right reasons. But it seemed appropriate for us to just linger on each of those um, each of the next two weeks before we dive into um, what is arguably one of the most difficult passages in all of Scripture um, when it comes to interpret, uh, interpretation, verses 18 through 22. Now, with this today, as we look at this suffering, this idea of suffering for the right reasons, I don't want it to sound like that we're connecting that with submission totally. And here's what I mean by that. I, I don't want godly submission to sound like it's grueling and suffering. Because if you remember, every time he speaks of submission to particular authorities or those that are um, in authority or the hierarchy even that we have within working relationships or masters and slaves or even husband and wife, that there is always a caveat that he gives that regardless, even if you are treated unjustly, we are to act this way. We are to submit this way. And so in that regard, there certainly is suffering when it comes to submission equal suffering when you are submitting in a situation that is very difficult and really is antagonistic to your faith, okay? So that is certainly where submission and suffering go hand in hand. And certainly in that circumstance then, he has called us each time to make sure that we are enduring and submitting to authorities in a way that is godly and that we are not resisting in an ungodly way. So that also makes sense for where we come today, which is not to seek to pay someone back, not to seek to slander back when you have been slandered. So in that sense, it does connect with submission when you are submitting in difficult circumstances, okay? But it also is a larger viewpoint introducing what is the rest of the book about suffering in general when the world is coming against Christians. And Peter wants to make sure that, first of all, that we, are, that we are prepared with a particular mindset and a particular commitment to particular actions so that when we do suffer, and it should be for righteousness' sake only, we are prepared to suffer well, even if it leads to death. I mean, this is pretty heavy stuff. But I think it's just really important that we make sure we have this connection and this understanding with the larger framework of Peter because as we see where we're coming out of with submission, especially as we do so in difficult authoritarian relationships, but also as we then head to this idea of the church itself in a community, in a society that is against her, that we should not miss the together aspect of this. 
So no longer is he just talking to wives, to husbands, and slaves, to masters, or all of us, to authorities. He's speaking now to the church in how to endure well. There is basically the sense of we collectively should think this way, we collectively should act this way, and therefore we should collectively remind each other to think this way and act this way. That is part of what it means to gather as the church. To remind ourselves that whatever suffering we may be going through is temporary. Because in order to have this perspective, we have to remember what Peter has said. We are elect exiles. We are those who simply have been made children of God by the grace of God through Christ, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit. And he has caused us to be foreigners in this world by making us citizens of his. And only with that perspective where we see this world as temporal, will we ever really truly respond to suffering in this world in the right way. Because our tendency is to make this world heaven. Even though we suspect it will not be that way, we still subvert faith, that which we cannot see, and we want to see it a little better. And so we grow impatient of what's to come with God, and we try to make it happen. And that could be through politics, that could be through church, that could be through any number of things. It could be through um, dating or courtship or engaged relationships, basically pursuing marriage. You could have that perspective wrongly in any number of relationships, with your jobs, with finances. Unless we have an eternal perspective of our citizenship, we will not think rightly about how to think in light of suffering and how to live and act in light of suffering. So with all that, let's just dive right into the passage. Let me read this, starting in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For, and here he quotes Psalm 34, 12 through 16. Whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, I do want to read the next section, okay? Even though we're not going to talk about it today. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will than for doing evil. So what we're going to talk about first is the way that we are to suffer. To suffer rightly means that we have to suffer in a particular way, and this really requires a mindset or a way to think through suffering. And he really gives us a very simple uh, list here of things for us to consider. 
The first thing he talks about is to think rightly. In, in order to respond to suffering in the right way, we have to think in a, in a right Christian kind of way. And the first thing he says is, church, have unity of mind. Have unity of mind. Now, this isn't uniformity. This doesn't mean that we're all going to look exactly the same. This does not mean that we'll even believe exactly the same, at least on sub-issues. But it does mean we are going to have shared beliefs. We are going to have shared mission. Okay? We're going to have some shared values when it comes to understanding that we all are part of the kingdom of heaven for those of us in Christ Jesus. What this does mean is that we are together and harmonious. The way that I would summarize that is to simply say that we are in the same place at the same time for the same reason. I mean, this is part of God's economy, right? In this side of heaven, he has seen fit for the people of God to gather in local congregations to show his glory. But we're also gathered in local congregations to suffer together so that we can show the hope that we have to a lost world that's right around us. So we have to have unity of mind that we have agreed to be in the same place at the same time for the same reasons. And again, this includes some shared beliefs, a shared mission of making disciples of all men. It's not complicated, but it can get difficult. Again, think about it, all the more reason. When you think about what, is, what challenges unity of mind, just think over the last couple of years. What has caused so much disruption in churches? It's all perspectives of earthly matters. All of them. One of the greatest things we can possibly do to promote unity Milford Bible Church, I'm not responsible for any other churches, not other congregants online or anything else. My responsibility and my accountability to God is here with you. And to pursue unity, we have to have a shared perspective of those of us in Christ are citizens of a kingdom that we do not see. That brings perspective in how we deal with the kingdom that we do. And I think that's one of the blessings of what we've seen, whether through politics or COVID or anything else we've seen over the last 24 to 36 months. I think it's actually been a good thing to expose so much of where we are thinking earthly about our Christianity instead of thinking in a unified manner about the kingdom of heaven and what is our mission really. The second thing he says to do is to sympathize. He says, have unity of mind, have sympathy. And again, this is to the whole church. We are to share. And there is also this sense that this unity of mind, you could actually extend the unity aspect to each of these other words. You could say we should have unity in our sympathy, unity in our brotherly love, unity in our tenderheartedness, unity in our humility. But as we have a shared sympathy, now you know what sympathy means. It means that you are genuinely hurting as other people are hurting. We are to weep with those who weep. When we suffer or when we see others suffer, we should share in that suffering. You know, I'll never forget the, uh, the cause of suffering I was one time for one of my sisters. Uh, it was, um, do you call the longer shovel sharpshooters here or did you back in the day, anybody? Okay, so, well, when you, we did. That's, that, maybe that's just a Southern or a Texas thing. But the, the longer 
I'll stay here. Okay, very good. The longer shovel, okay, um, that's basically like a, a large spade, um, we called it a sharpshooter. Well, one of the biggest mistakes that my sister ever made was to come outside and we had a big pile of dirt. There was a lot of construction going on in our cul-de-sac where I grew up and I had dug a foxhole. And uh, I mean, I was 18. No, I'm just kidding. I was about 10, I think. And um, I was digging a foxhole and everything was always about war. It was about um, some kind of imaginary battle going on. My sister came outside and decided that at the age of 14, 15, that she would kick in some of my foxhole. And so I told her, don't do that. And I said it in no uncertain terms. I think I was very, very clear. I didn't speak a foreign language, didn't speak in tongues. I was very clear that she should not kick in. So I do defend myself on that regard. And I, I can say that the next motion was simply the same motion that I'd been doing all along, which was me digging and shoveling, right? Just like that. Well, after she said that, and I warned her multiple times, I can tell you with a good conscience, I didn't look where this was going, but the last time that I did this, it just stuck. And I go, I do like that. And then I see this really beautiful smiley face across the forehead of my sister that just then just starts to do this. If you're squeamish, I'm sorry, but that's actually what happened. She didn't actually realize what exactly had happened. She got really upset, but she's like, I'm going to tell mom and dad. And I was like, you have no idea what you're about to tell mom and dad because, and then it gets right to her eyebrows and she starts to freak out. So the way that I blessed her in my incredible amount of sympathy was the entire way to the emergency room as I'm holding the towel to catch the blood. I'm telling her that it's not near as bad as the time that I cracked my head open. The whole trip. I'm telling, that's not near as bad as when, because what I was doing was I was dreaming one time, thought I was Superman, jumped off the bed and hit my head on the side of a dresser. And, and it was, it was probably like five stitches. She easily needed 10 to a dozen, but I was determined for her to know that it wasn't near as bad. That's not sympathy. There's nothing about that that's sympathy. We too often want to basically, we'll be in a situation where someone might be hurting. Okay. And yet our sympathy runs cold so quickly because we immediately want to garner sympathy for ourselves. The church is to be unified in the fact that we should be hurting for other people, even in spite of our hurt, our own hurt. It doesn't mean we're not going to be cared for, but it does mean that we need to have a default, and that is to lean into other people's pain, to genuinely hurt for other people. Again, COVID and everything we've been through, I mean, even, to, even this morning, I was reading of a sub-variant uh, of Omicron, Omicron-B or something that's now running in South Africa. And, um, you know, we're going to continue to have opportunities to share in each other's difficulty. And I'm grateful for uh, where hopefully all this is leading um, as far as our, our having immunity and everything else. We'll see. But nonetheless, we've had a great opportunity to sympathize with other people and to hurt with other people. And it's also exposed where we don't do that well, where we just don't hurt for others as much as we should. I mean, think about it. Sometimes we can, you can have someone who's on the other side of perspective of vaccines or masks, and if they get sick, your first thought is to may, maybe say how right you were in your perspective instead of just, I'm so sorry you're sick. Now, you may not be so brazen as to actually say that to them, to say, see, I told you. I hope that wouldn't be the case. But God knows. And it does affect our witness when even internally, our first thought is not to sympathize with the hurt of other people. This is simply, as we hurt with other people, we are showing compassion and we are suffering with one another. We are called as a church to have unity of mind 
be in the same place at the same time with the same reason, for the same reasons, sharing mission, sharing passion, sharing beliefs, and we'd also share in sympathy to one another, to enter into each other's hurt. The third thing he talks about is brotherly love. I mean, this is simple. It's simply that word phileo. It's where we get Philadelphia. You know, as a guy who raised cowboys, there was nothing phileo about Philadelphia. And, uh, but um, that's okay. I don't feel like my hometown team uh, ever threatens the Super Bowl ever again. But in that case, I'll just cheer for other teams. Which, by the way, I think the prospect of Brandon having two, two daughters has just emboldened him. His new boldness is, uh, is staggering. That strong voice that's coming out that came out this morning about the Rams, I'm impressed, Brandon. I, good luck. Um, this idea of brotherly love, you guys know what this is, but, but as we talk about it being brotherly love or fraternal, that it's a family kind of love that the church should have with one another, I think one of the perspectives here that's helpful is to to consider not just why that's the case, but that means that we all have a shared father. We have a shared father, God the Father. Okay, we're looking to him. That is why there should be a fraternal love because we have been loved first in the agape sense from God. Every time that it is mentioned with phileo in the scriptures, it is talking about the church kind of love, the fellowship kind of love that we share. This should be mutual. It's almost like an antiphony in Isaiah 6 where you have the angels going back and forth saying, holy, holy, holy. There is something about that when it comes to phileo. We should be loving back and forth one another. And we show that in various ways. But he is really showing us how central and how important the local church is in our suffering well. Guys, one of the reasons I read the next passage is because there is a bit of a tether that this has with verse 15 always being prepared to make a defense. This is a lifestyle, cultural apologetic for the local church. To suffer well puts us in the ready always to speak the gospel. This is crucial for us locally. No, suffering well and just being nice when you're being reviled won't, doesn't necessarily win anyone to Christ by itself. But at some point, somebody notices something and will ask you questions. Or if they don't, when you then have something to share, you're sharing from a perspective that they have watched so much more than you think. They have seen you endure the reviling words of a boss. They've seen you endure a difficult marriage. We are called to show brotherly love with one another. The fourth one, tender-hearted. Now, this is a little bit different than sympathy. It's similar, but it's a little bit different. Sympathy where we enter into the hurt and the pain of others. The tenderheartedness goes deeper into actual emotion. Now, for those of you who know anything about the you know, original languages, you would know that heart most of the time, at least on the physical sense in the Greek, would be the, the word cardis. That's where we get like cardiac. And so that makes a lot of sense. That's not the word here. The word here means what they understood to be the seat of emotion, but for them, it always attached itself to some physiology. So do you know what this word actually attaches itself to? What organ this attaches to? The intestines. Tomorrow's Valentine's Day. Can you imagine 
I, I, I've got this part of me that just so wishes, you know, the old little heart candies that just say, be mine. And can you imagine if they were in the shape of an intestine? Be mine. Think of all the songs. Do you remember the, some of you are old enough to remember the old Juice Newton song, playing with the queen of intestines. Satan was attacking me this morning. For some reason, out of the blue, I thought of achy, breaky heart. <laughs> and I thought achy, breaky intestines. Or that classic Celine Dion song, My Intestines Will Go On. <laughs> Having had a colonoscopy recently, they do go on and on and on. Guys, the fact is, is that they, in this attachment that they have made, basically they're saying that this is the deepest seat of emotion that we're to actually feel. It, we're not to be stiff and unfeeling when it comes to our care and our love for other people. What does that demand? That demands information. That demands communication. That demands, there's so many things that it demands of us to really know and to understand about those that are around us. But remember, the backdrop of this is suffering. This isn't when things are neutral and everything's just happy and good. It's suffering. We're to have unity of mind. We're to be sympathetic. We're to have brotherly love. We're to be tenderhearted. Even Philippians 4.32, I think maybe this, this picture will help you. When Paul says, he says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, same word, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So I'm not saying that tenderhearted is always attached to forgiveness, but he is saying we need to even feel what it means to forgive others of what they've forgiven, but he attaches it to remembering what it's like to be forgiven. And that's what we have to tap into when it comes to really understanding the hurt and the pain of other people as we ourselves are suffering. And one of the greatest ways we can do that is that when there has been wrong, when we have been reviled, and instead of reviling back, we actually are in position to instead forgive. It shows a tenderheartedness that the world does not understand. Now, to get past the intestines part, if you just want to think about your guts, maybe that will help. Maybe that's more Western for us. It's just, it's just deep down in the gut. The last one he gives in the way that we think is the humble mind. And this overarching is just simply humility, but it means intentionally thinking of others above yourself. There's a self-forgetfulness when it comes to this. It's not false. It's not a just being um, kind of self-debasing, self-deprecating, and somehow those words make you humble. That's not what he's saying. It's almost a self-forgetfulness because you're thinking so much of others. You just don't think of yourself as much. That's not the culture we live in. That's not the world we live in. In fact, if you take the antithesis of that and apply it to human institutions, that's where you get white supremacy. That's where you get Nazism. That's where you get communism. That's where you get any number of institutions that will say it's about us, it's about this race first and foremost and eventually only to the degradation of every other race or culture or people. They were living in the face of that. How contrary it is for the church to live just the opposite. 
to have humility of mind. Philippians 2, 3, and 4 says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The humility of mind. So we're to have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender-hearted humility of mind. In fact, there's a bit of a, you know, you may know this word if you've done any Bible study, a chiasm to this where you have this tiered response that makes a sideway kind of V, okay? So if you look at the top and the bottom, the first and the fifth, you have mind. You have unity of mind, you have humility of mind, and then you work in, and to these you have sympathy and tenderhearted, which are very similar to one another. And then the one that, that hinges it in the middle is the idea of brotherly love. Peter's very on purpose with his use of literary tools to help people remember Think about this. Think about it in the sense of what would be the tip of the spear for us as a church. That brotherly love is backloaded with a deep-seated sympathy and tenderheartedness for one another, which is also supported because we have shared belief, shared mission, shared value, but also shared humility. But right thinking is not the only aspect to this passage. There's also this brief section that deals with right action. So to to react to suffering in a right way demands right thinking, but also right action. Here's where he goes with this. In saying what to do, he first starts with what not to do, okay? So look at this in verse 9. He says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. So essentially, it's a singular action that we're called to, and that's to bless. We're to be a blessing. But he first says we have to resist the urge to do something in light of being treated unjustly. And guys, that only happens if we are actually thinking rightly. If those five things are at play, then we have a better chance of staving off this tendency to push evil back with evil practice. Or when he says don't revile with reviling, that's probably more of our issue, which is still an evil. And what that basically is, is just being slanderous with our speech. This guy says this, well, what about this then? The what about isms that we find on social media and in our interactions with one another, nobody wants to just own up to their stuff. They want to point back at the other guy's stuff. It's not only juvenile, it's anti-Christian. You don't push evil back with evil. You don't push reviling and slander back with slander. The world does that. That is not what those redeemed and saved by God through Christ do. That should not mark us. Not in social media and not in private chats, not on Facebook, not in any other way should we be having this slanderous approach to things. That includes using things that you don't, have, don't know to be true. It is slanderous actually to use false information or conspiracies that you don't have supported to come against somebody with. It's unproven. That's not how Christians work. We deal with what we know to be true and what we know to be marked by the fruit of the Spirit of God. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. 
Luke 6, 28 and 29, Christ himself says, bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And for one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. I mean, do we just think that's, that's really good for the kiddies? That's just good for the little Sunday school classes in the playground? Is that, does that not apply to us in our workplaces and in the midst of politics and in the midst of our, even our homes? This is not just a behavioral ethic. It's an expression of what it means to be saved by God. Christ endured so much injustice and did every one of these things. And it left people asking questions. There were many who even witnessed what he did and how he responded. Nicodemus would be one of those that watched how he responded and it either led to or confirmed a faith that he secretly was holding. So he was able to risk being associated with the burial of Christ himself. And this is a guy that was known. What do we do that acts in a certain way, so contrary to the way the world acts, that would cause the world to question our commitment to things on earth? Now, to underscore this idea of being a blessing, to speak well of other people, that's actually what blessing means. It means that you are speaking a blessing. So not only are you not turning evil for evil and reviling, coming back with slander, you're actually saying blessing. And no, just so you know, the, the being nice to someone and heaping coals on their head has never, ever meant, oh, I'm going to be nice so they hurt. It's never been what that means. That's not what it means. Now, if they feel guilt or if they feel something, that's, that's something else. But to do it for that reason, it just isn't going to come across quite the way it's supposed to. We're to speak blessing into their lives. And the way that he does this, the way that Peter does this is uses Psalm 34. And what he says is, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. It's interesting because we do know, you know, a lot of Psalms we don't know exactly where they come from. We do know where this one comes from. This Psalm comes from 1 Samuel chapter 21. And a lot of it's quoted in verses 10 through 14. What's going on in 1 Samuel 21 is this. David, again, is being pursued by Saul. David runs away. A lot of times he hid in caves. This particular time, he sought refuge from a particular king. Do you know who, he was, who this king was the king of? Philistines. David has a history with Philistines. It's not one that would make the Philistines very happy. And in doing so, he actually lies about who he is, but then they recognize who he is. He didn't necessarily lie right up front. He just didn't disclose it. Then they finally recognized what they had. And so instead of giving him refuge, they incarcerated him. Well, while incarcerating him, David then gets very shrewd and begins to act like he's going crazy, just literally having a, a mad fit of the mind. And they eventually release him and he escapes, or they loosen his bonds and he escapes. But here's the interesting part. This is what David writes, Psalm 34, this is what David writes in response to all that occurred while he was incarcerated with the Philistines. And if you look through it and read through it, he says that I did not speak evil of those who 
even put me in prison or those, I didn't speak evil. See, when you look at what Saul, Saul, there is actually a count later on after chapter 21 when Saul is looking at it and just said, oh, that sneaky devil. Summary, but he's just saying, Oh, David, he is so shrewd and sneaky. But David is saying clearly, No, this is because God has mercifully delivered me. And the path for this was him not speaking evil against his captors, number one. And the second thing was praying that God would deliver him. And he says, and David puts the two together, he says, If I would have spoken evil against them, God would not have heard me. And that's the point. Peter is reminding, especially the Jews in their fellowships in these churches in Asia Minor, that you need to remember this, that even with your captors, do not speak evil. It will hinder the prayers that actually do the delivering work. That's how you're blessed. You're blessed by being able to articulate to God, God, you are the only one who can save me from this. And you don't use the weapons of the world. You ask God to step in and do something to deliver you from the suffering at the hands of those who are unrighteous. Do I even need to say that, that all these principles don't really work if you're just suffering because of being a jerk? Let's get over the jerk part first. Ask forgiveness to all those you've been a jerk to and then start, if you do suffer, for being the good guy. But as Peter uses this, it's, it's really telling for us to understand that his perspective is pursue good, especially with your speech, and then pursue God in prayer. Now, this connects, guys, if you look back up in verse 7, when the husband is told to lead his wife with understanding, the purpose was so that their prayers were not hindered. So, twice now, in just a few verses, David has, I mean, Peter has connected this prospect of when we lead and live rightly then the one who actually makes a difference in our lives, God, then our interaction with him, our fellowship with him, our prayers with him are not hindered. And that's the real delivering point, is praying that God would do it. And you know what? Honestly, God always does. You can read Hebrews 11 and know that God always delivers. I mean, the first half of the list in in Hebrews 11, essentially he delivers them with victory. The other half, he delivers them through death. No more pain, except for the one that got them there. But for the people of God, who have the mindset of, I'm a citizen of the other kingdom, we are always delivered, one way or another. Now, before, as we close, before we think this is all kind of behaviorism or just an ethic that we're supposed to have, this connects very clearly to the gospel to the fact that we are sinners saved by Christ's life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And we've already touched on it partly in verse 15. He says, he says, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So, being ready. Why? Because people see you suffering. You're suffering differently than the world suffers. And they ask you, why do you still have hope? Why does this not bother you more like it's bothering me? Or even at the hands of your captors or your abusers, why isn't this more, why aren't you responding in a different way? You are ready then to give an answer. But it also ties to verse 18. 
In verse 18, he goes and reminds them, reminds the, the churches, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, reminding them that all of us were unrighteous prior to coming to Christ. There was none righteous, no, not one. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went. And I'm not going to read the rest because it's part of the hard text. <laughs> Give me two weeks. It basically is part of the debate of whether or not Christ actually went to hell in between death and resurrection. I mean, come next week too, but two weeks. All right. <laughs> I may be getting sick already. I may not be able to preach that week. I'm just kidding. But this connects to the gospel in that way. It either prepares you to share the gospel because you're showing a hope that the world can't comprehend. Or at the very least, guys, it is emboldening your understanding of you were also unrighteous at one point and you were being reminded of righteousness. And every time that happens, the exchange is simple. You will share the gospel when you are re-infused with an affection for the Christ who has saved you. Our suffering reminds us of Christ's suffering. And Paul, when he talks about filling up what was lacking in Christ's sufferings in Galatians, do you know what? That, that gives us a picture of this, that we share in his sufferings in this way. We can show in a very visceral way to people right around us who were never there for Christ's death. And even though it's certainly not crucifixion or execution, they can still see us suffer kind of like Christ did. We are only going to see this rightly when we think about heaven and the kingdom of heaven and our own citizenship rightly. So let me ask you, as you think about these things being in response, the right way of thinking, okay? That right way of thinking being unity of mind, the sympathy, the brotherly love, the tenderheartedness, the humility of mind, and then also those actions of being, of not reviling against those who have reviled, but actually speaking blessing on them. What is it you need to repent of? What do you need to repent of as far as your actions when you are wronged? What have you actually done? Now, we need to still repent of even the desire to do otherwise, but some of us have gone so far as to have our thumbs move a certain way and to shoot back a shot to somebody who's made a shot at us. What do you need to repent of? Who do you need to actually go to and ask forgiveness? Or who do you need to forgive that has reviled you? This is real stuff. We can have all the programs in the world, but if our church culture doesn't envelop this way of thinking about suffering, I think what we say will fall flat to the world around us. Oh, God will still save some because that's the nature of the gospel that goes forth. But he desires for us to have a culture where we have a shared unity of thinking about what it means to suffer and to suffer rightly. And then next week we'll talk about suffering for the right reasons. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to go ahead and close your eyes. And I just want to mention a couple of things. I want you to pray through these things. First of all, I want you to take a few minutes. No, not even that long. Just take some seconds right where you are. And I want you to ask the Lord to show you if there is anyone that you need to ask forgiveness for responding wrongly to in light of being wronged. Just take a few moments for that. As you ask the Lord to give you strength to ask forgiveness, also ask Him if there's anyone that you have been harboring anything against that you need to forgive, even if they should never apologize. 
And let me guide us through these last three points. Our God, we thank you that you, Holy Spirit, convict us of sin. You convict us where we have wronged others and that we have an opportunity to humble ourselves and ask forgiveness. And Jesus, you've also shown us the great injustice, the huge gap that's between your righteousness and the unrighteous way that you were dealt with, that any way that we've ever been treated unjustly doesn't even come close to that gap. And so we need to be forgiving. You have forgiven us for those of us in Christ Jesus, and I pray that you give us strength to, to forgive others. But in doing so, I pray that you would help our church to be unified. There are so many churches, God, around this country that have unified around lesser things in recent days. God, help us to unify around the things that please you the most, the mindset that we've mentioned here, the actions that we've talked about here. Gathering here for, in our shared beliefs for a shared mission and purpose to remind one another of our citizenship. Lord, I pray for our church body that there are some who are in circumstances that are truly difficult and they are truly seeking to respond as godly as possible. And I pray that you give them strength. I pray that you would give them humility to share those struggles with others that they may encourage them. Lord, we also pray that you would make us keenly aware of the lost person that is observing our lives. Even if we can't imagine anybody just watching what we do, what we say, and yet to know that absolutely is happening. Help us to keep that in mind, not to be hypocrites or to put on a show, but Lord, to know that yes, the world does watch us and help us to live in such a way that if they are provoked just even a bit to wonder, let it be because we are relentless in our hope in Christ. And even if they can't put their finger on it, I pray that we would live in such a way, so consistent with this text that we've talked about today, that we would have stories of people, of lost people literally coming to us and saying, well, what, why, why do you have hope in this circumstance? Why do, why do you feel this way? And that we are ready to share that that's not because of some ethic or some moral behavior. That's because we were unrighteous. We were, we deserved this and yet Christ gave us that. May it be for your glory, O oh God, in the life of our church, to honor yourself in this way that we would think rightly, we would act rightly, because we have a shared, clear, unified vision of what it means to be saved, born again, redeemed. And may it bear much fruit for your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen.